in some of his most candid work to date, full of lyrical escapes and embarkments, Carmine Starnino reflects on his own attempts to hit a stride and secure a sense of belonging, measuring degrees of proximity to home. Starnino is a poet, essayist, critic, and editor. His most recent collection with English subtitles won the A.M. Klein Prize for Poetry and the 2006 Brazzani Prize. He lives in Montreal. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. A Lover's Quarrel, which was published 10 years ago. Was it call for more evaluative criticism? I think we have a fair amount of catching up to do. Evaluative criticism has taken hold elsewhere and seen as an important part of the whole critical ecosystem. Certainly not the only part. It's not the only thing critics need to do. But here, I think we're, we're still quite shy about calling a spade a spade. Well, perhaps that's what I could do in looking at your... Yeah, please. <laughs> your most recent work, uh, This Way Out. I think the best poem in the book is one called The Butterflies I Dreamt in Childhood Are Here. Mm. Could I get you to read it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The butterflies I dreamt in childhood are here. Look at you, blown in from Christ knows where. Shoulder to shoulder, silk kissing silk against the asters and the bunting of open wing and stem, dozens strong, seemingly self-xeroxed, an apricot spree of yellow sprayed on green, and lopsidedly clinging as you feed, afterward ascending on pillars of altitude, a still life. You have a week at best, and soon the almanac will catch up even with that good bloom and leave it twisted shut like a burr. There's something else to consider in the barn red, hay-green fact of this place. A sparrow split open near the willows in full sun. But no, it's you I'd rather watch, heavy enough to flag a flower. You are large cups of color set on such small saucers, coins to keep a child's eyes closed. Yeah, and I love that because a number of things, the meadowy, bucolic, yeah. pastoral feel that it gives me, but also the colors and the beautiful metaphors, the way that you compare saucers and wings and uh, children's eyes and coins. Do you think that's a good poem? Yeah, I think it's one of, the, uh, one of my favorites in the book. I wouldn't necessarily sort of place it at the front. Why not? I think there are, for my money, there are better poems in the book. The, the, the poem about my father, Lucky Me, I think is a better poem. Because it brought more out of you than this Yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty, I think, when you're talking to poets about their own work is that you're so close to the poems. And I know things about the poems, obviously, readers don't know. And, and I know the victories that may not be apparent to readers, you know, personal victories over the language, over my own emotions and sort of dealing with particular subjects. So, you know, I feel, I look at a poem like Lucky Me, and I know the, the work that went into it, and the years of, of private anguish about whether, you know, I could ever pull it off. So obviously that's sort of mixed up in my good feelings about the poem. And the butterflies I dreamt in childhood are here is a poem that came much more easily to me. And in many ways it's a poem I feel that I could have written at any point. Almost like a gift coming to you. That's right. And, and the poem about my father uh, is a poem that I could not have written earlier. I, in a sense I feel I, I was only able to write it at the time in which it was everything was um, made available to me. You know? mm -hmm. So I, I, I feel that the poem, that poem, which, which is a poem I've thought about writing for a long time, was only, I could only assemble all the pieces together when I, I had all my wits about me, when you know, I had the wherewithal to actually do it. You know? And I feel I had to do a bit of growing. Maturing, I, that's right. giving yeah. yourself perspective on, yeah, yeah. on that life event or yeah. 
those yeah. events. But I also have to say that I feel a bit uneasy about even weighing in on, on a, del a deliberation like this, which is, mm -hmm. who do you, what do you think is your better poem, and why don't yeah. you think this is a better poem? Because I feel that once the books are published, and this is part of my whole attitude towards criticism, once the books are published, they, they no longer belong to you. It's, it's as much your book as, mm -hmm. you know, as, an, as someone else's. And so, uh, I, you know, and this is something that James Heaney said, that these are textual children that he's had to let go into mm -hmm. the world. And, you know, wishes them luck and, and hopes they do well. But I do feel You're staying in touch with them. Obviously, yeah, obviously you do. Because, and of course, you know, the, the world sends you letters about them through reviews, mm -hmm. and you know, and then once in a while, they, you know, you get a special note that the book has won a prize, and so you go see your child sort of awarded something. I do feel some distance from the books uh, after they're done, and, and I move on to other projects. So personally, I find it easier to suffer the neglect and breakbacks of a career because I, I do feel that the books and the poems have not sort of moved on and you know and, and are living out their adventures you know in other people's lives or not you know it's possible that the books have gone nowhere i gave a very brief explanation of why i thought for me that was my favorite you gave me an answer that was more about where that poem came from than what was on the page yeah but the that's because you can't separate yourself from the actual function of the i don't think i can separate my relationship with these poems with the memory of having written them, and there's still a memory of some of the thinking that went into revising them and working on them. So I'm, I, I think objectively I can concede that this is one of the better poems in the book. The language is meddlesome, it's, you know, the, the, the metaphors are, are, I think, fresh, and I think that the, the poem is, is uniformly strong from line to line. It's like, yeah, it's, like it's a, a fully functioning baby, as you that's say, right, yeah. that's been born. Yeah. The fact that I wrote this gives me great pleasure. It g gave me great pleasure when I first wrote it, and you know, it gives me pleasure to know this in the book. And mm -hmm. you know, it certainly would be amongst the poems that I think should be in any selected if I ever get a chance to put one together. But this was also a poem that was part of my frustration with my own work, which was my need at, at all times to make the language as interesting as possible, to the exclusion of what the poem itself needed. Right. So I, you know, I look at this poem, and I read this poem, and I, I feel as if this poem belonged to a sort of a prior panic or worry I had about whether I was becoming deaf to other registers in the language. In other words, you didn't want to sound like Hardy. That's right, yeah. I mean, m my initial fear was that my language just had become too simple. Uh, and this is certainly something that, that, that struck me when I published my first book, which is, which is that I, the poems were sounding a lot like the poetry that I hated reading. And so I wanted to write poems that I, I myself enjoyed reading in other people's work, uh, the sorts of poems that I looked for. And so that's what happened in Credo, which is, I, I mean, I made an effort to go back in the tr tradition and do my reading um, and try to sort of build up new registers. And, but now I feel that the pendulum has gone completely in that direction, and I wanted to pull back a little bit. And so the father poem, The Lucky Me, is part of that pulling back, mm -hmm. where the language is much more spoken, um, and I feel that the music has been sort of fully absorbed, or as much as possible, into the sort of the, into the lines, and, and without giving away any sort of excess music. You know. Perhaps we can look very closely then at a couple of these stanzas, and sure, if yeah. you could tell us what you did. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's hard, because I find the act of writing is a bit trance-like. You know, it's hard for me to figure out where this stuff comes from. You know. It's a trance-like, but then so there's this sort of an emotional driver, if yeah. you will. But there's also a rational one. The rational one comes in only... I mean, it's there sort of hovering as you're writing. Because you don't want to waste too much time sort of going in the wrong direction. 
So can you explain when you put in the rationals <laughs> in this poem? I'd have to look through the drafts, but I okay. think, I think, for example, the rational side started to come in strong when um, I realized that I was coming up with a great number of metaphors for butterflies. So at some point, I felt, said to myself, obviously, I mean, you know, I said to myself, this has got to stop, right? Either you find the most memorable metaphors and keep them, you can't go on forever, right? That's one job of the rational side. So, so you're almost ranking the metaphors that's that right. came to you. You know, it's, and, and this is sort of, I think, an axiom in all editing, which is, and this is part of what I do even with my other life when I edit nonfiction and journalism for Mezzanine Magazine, which is, you know, a writer will come to you with three quotes, right? And, and they're great, and, they've all, and they're in the piece. But better one memorable quote than three quotes jostling for position, mm -hmm. right? So the reader's left with nothing to remember. So less it, is more. Less is more in that mm -hmm. sense. So, so the rational side comes in and says, well, Carmen, you have to choose now. Of these like ten metaphors you've just come up with, which are the five or the three or the two that really need to stay mm -hmm. and the rest can go, right? So the idea is that plenitude is suggested just by the richness of the language mm -hmm. rather than by the quantity of, mm -hmm. of metaphors. The quality of the, the or. That's the right, the, yeah. The resonance, the yeah. different images that might come in, yeah. they may generate more ideas. I, and I think this is the, the amazing thing about poetry, is that it has an asymmetric relationship to scale. Mm -hmm. So that, how many times do we, sit, do we sit in a poetry reading and a poet is reading this long, sort of rich poem? You know, and in the end you feel beaten because you can't remember any of it. Mm -hmm. And then someone steps up to the podium and reads this rather, rather short lyric and you can't forget it. So the poem stays with you far longer. Um, and in a sense, um, an inverse relationship to the size. You know, and the longer poem, of course, completely moves through your head like water. You just don't remember it at all. And so if there is a core rule for poetry is that less is often more, mm -hmm. you know. But sometimes you do want the more is more effect. You do want the the pile on effect. Well, you have a story to tell, and it's it's yeah. not it has to be yeah. told in yeah. a certain number of words. You brought up the squash poem, for example. And mm -hmm. I think in in our conversations before the, the recording went on, you you nominated it as a poem you didn't think it was was one of the better ones in the book. And that one was a poem where I thought I needed the pile on effect. I needed to push this and push this, push this. And you uh, repeat the same words. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Through the yeah. Poem. Yeah. Which is deliberate. I mean, and that's another part where the rational comes in. You know, I, you, you realize this is what I should be doing. This is what I think I should be doing. So I, you find the words you want to repeat. And I think when you're writing, I'm not a formalist in the sense that I don't really actually write in set forms. But I am a formalist in the sense that the poems I write do organize themselves around stanzas and, and maybe specific line lengths and, and internal rhymes and, and rhymes and you know. And I do try to keep a sort of... Uh, what about rhythm? Is there rhythm. A See, this is the, the unteachable thing. You yeah. can't teach them into rhythm. But there is, a, there is a music that I try to follow that I think has is, is, is been given to me by, by the, the poem that I'm writing, as yeah. I'm writing it. Yeah, okay. so it's like a four-beat or a five-beat. That's right, yeah. And I, tr I try to sort of find out what that is, and I try to sort of keep it as much as possible without it interfering with what I think the poem should be doing. Because I don't really don't want the straitjacket effect that, you know, I think a form, a formalism can give you, I think, you know. And I'm not enough of a formalist to actually beat the straitjacket, to break the straitjacket. Mm. You know, you'd have to go back to someone like Wilbur, for example, or Anthony Hecht, who are uh, just impossibly good at what they do. So that, and, you know, Richard Wilbur's sonnets are incredible because you will read them out loud to somebody, and the person will never know that this is a strict sonnet, right? The form has been completely erased, disappeared. Just the, because of the... This is the talent. Ingenuity. That's right, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm not that good. So I mean, I, so the rational part comes in only in the sense that as the poem begins to progress, you begin thinking about, well, how do I organize this? What 
signs is the poem telling me about the ways in which this needs to be shaped. And that's where I feel the rational part comes in. The rational part steps in and begins saying, this requires six stanzas. Really, this is one of those, you know, or maybe you should be striving for 14 lines here. Maybe you should, you should keep the ghost of the, 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 that ghost feeling of the sonnet here. And I feel that rational side. So in, in, in the butterfly poem, I don't think this is a strict sonnet. Talk. It is a sonnet, actually. Yeah. Um, There's sort of a problem or a situation that's resolved. There is a twist at the end of the sparrow, and so, and so in that, in that sense, I think the the rational side began to take over and began to sort of shape this closer to a sonnet. One, one of the things that I like uh, about what Derek Attridge has said in his book of uh, poetic rhythm is, and he's not original in this, but when you're reading a poem, to look for anticipation mm. and resolution, which keeps the thing moving. Is a sort of a movement forward that keeps yeah. your attention, I suppose. Yeah. But I also want to say that you know that, that rational side doesn't exist in terms of sort of separate state from the creative side. I think when you're writing well, you feel as though you become some incredible alloy of the two, and you're, you're moving mm. through the, the language. But I also yeah. want to say that in this historical period we're in, where homemade forms are the norm, the tradition has been sort of melted down to the extent where everyone's making their own forms, and it's, it's hard to anticipate what the form, what a poem will look like now which was very different even from 100 years ago, where I think the metrical norm really ruled. In that aspect, I think that rational side has become more important because the rational side begins to sort of organize this mess into something that begins to feel and sound like a, a pattern. Just uh, by the end of I mean, the, 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 end ending, of the process ending at the lines, too, yes, right, yeah. it's three verses, yeah. pretty straightforward. Yeah. Just, I think it should end here. Yeah. But I, I feel that if the poem doesn't have that pattern, even if, and even if it is a homemade pattern, from scratch pattern, if there isn't a pattern there for the reader to latch on to, then it's a failed poem. I mean, I think the, the, there, there needs to be some organizing principle there. I mean, there needs to be some kind of rhythm. A rhythm, a, a tone. Uh, yeah. you, you obviously, you want this stuff to be working together. A unity. A unity. It doesn't necessarily mean that the pattern or that unity is, is, is there to be experienced immediately, but you do want it there shaping the reader's response to the poem. It's a lot like Philip Larkin using iambic pentameter, yeah. but using the most day-to-day -day kind of That's right. vocabulary. It's just so wonderful to read this street talk. That's right, yeah. Where it doesn't belong, but boy, does it ever work. It does, yeah. And he's another example of someone who whose art has a great deal to do with uh, making that art disappear. I think for most people who read poetry, or yeah. many people, they wouldn't necessarily pick up what's going that's on right, underneath, yeah, yeah. but something's happening to them. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one reason he's so popular amongst people maybe who maybe don't read uh, a lot of poetry. When you're reading and you're not aware that there's a, a master craftsman at work, you mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. feel as though you have to respond to, that, to the poem on that level, mm -hmm. even though the poem is responding to you on that level. One of the things about major poets is the sheer ruthlessness of the poems in shaping your responses. Controlling you. Controlling yeah. you. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. think you're just reading a poem, but the poem is reading you. The poem is shaping your responses. The poem is, has absolute designs on you. I find that sort of both terrifying and exhilarating. The reader can just sort of stumble on a poem, but as soon as that happens, the poem begins to assemble itself in, in the attentions of the reader and begins to sort of do its thing. And, and Larkin's poems are really ruthless that way. There is no error in any of his poems. Mm. There is nothing about in any of his poems that he's not accounted for. It's a master propagandist, I think. Well, maybe. Maybe that'd be one way of putting it. I mean, but the poems feel as though they were <laughs> sort of uttered in the moment. You can, you can relate to them That's as right. your own. So, I mean, I think that must be, for many of us, the golden ring, I mean, the thing that you want, where the poems, on its own terms, exists as a poem, but feels as though it could be spoken and read by anybody.
The other poem that I put at the top of my list is the very first one. That's right, next door. I love the complete unity of the butterfly poem, but, but this one, just because of the lines, days knocked deep into other days, where bad decisions were lived counterclockwise and endlessly refitted to finish up flush. <laughs> Can you get into that a bit for me, that sure, particular I mean, line? This is the first poem I actually wrote for the book. I'm one of those poets who does think of you know, the, what the next project would be. I do think about what, how the next book will look. You know, a lot of my friends you know, write their poems after three or four years, they'll just collect them together. But early in the game, I need to know where I'm, you know, the book is going, and that's just how I work. And this was the first, the very first poem I wrote in that period when I was thinking about what, what I could do next. I don't know, this is one of those 50, 60 draft poems, and it, it took me many, many years to just get it down. And it's part of this dread I was feeling that I'd become very good at writing one kind of poem. And it was a poem that was very lexically alert, was always trying to be, do very interesting things with the language, and, and really sort of over-muscled in a sense. And I was afraid that maybe I'd forgotten. I could no longer go the other way and write poems that could maybe draw on that same sort of patterning that I was, I'd become very good at, but use it in a more conversational way. And so I guess I was pleased when I finished this, that just very briefly interrupt what I'm going to say. And one thing that also sort of worried me was something that a reviewer had said about my previous book with English subtitles. I mean, footnote this by saying that I actually enjoy reading my reviews, especially the negative ones, because mm -hmm. I, I learn a great deal. Yeah. I mean, if they're smarmy, then I have nothing to learn. But if, if someone has yeah. read the book closely, then there's no reason why you would want to discount what they're saying. And so it was a review written by Abu Farman in Arc Magazine. Farman had noticed that there are very few poems about people in the book. The book was filled with poems about objects. One of the implications was that this could be and was, for my case, a rather easy thing to do because, you know, re responding to an object and writing up that response to a poem had, had developed the momentum in the book, irrespective of whether any actually needed to do that. Hence your father. Poem. That's right, yeah. yeah. So I was also pleased that the very first poem in the next, which I hope will be a next project, was all about people, men particularly, and, and spoke to a series of experiences that I had had during my own barfly days. I was younger running with the pack I was running with mm. that I was never able to get into a poem. And so I, one of the things I realized with, with this book particularly, even though it's an intellectual lesson, I mean, it's a real lesson. It was a lesson in this book, although one understands it intellectually, is that there's certain poems you can't write until you give yourself permission to do so. Right. And the permission is all psychological. So blocks, you may not be aware of or right. that comes to light. Your own language has to sort of catch up to, to that idea of yourself, self-permission. Well, with your permission, Let's look very precisely at that line. Yeah, where bad decisions were lived counterclockwise and endlessly refitted to finish up flesh. What, what are you saying there? About the, the second guessing that goes on in the way in our lives, how we all, we're always casting our minds back to moments of defeat maybe or, or loss, moments when we, we should have done something and didn't, the coulda, shoulda moments. We, we try to relive those moments reorganize them so that we come out better than we that's did. So the glory um, days. Sort of. That's right, yeah. yeah. Or they fit into some grand that's pattern right, that yeah. you weren't aware of at the time. Yeah, so you're okay. living them counterclockwise, you're living them in your mind backwards, and, and you're endlessly jogging them and jigging them so that they fit in place where right. they should go. Like right. a carpenter mind. That's right, yeah. 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 Carpenter of the mind. That's right. I, I liked that because it had a kind of workmanlike, pragmatic feeling. I would imagine this would be this metaphor that men in a bar would think of rather than something grander. And so that's why I like that line because I do feel as though it, it philosophically and, and theoretically fits into this world that I'm trying to write about. It seemed like if I were eavesdropping on the minds of these men and trying to turn that into poetry, this may be a metaphor that they 
they would come up with. Come up yeah. I'm speaking with Carmine Starnino, who, in addition to being a, an honored Canadian poet, is also the editor of a, what would you call Mason, a quarterly of arts, arts and quarterly out of Montreal. Yeah. We could move on to just briefly look at the squash racket. Sure. I just want to explain that this is a poem I personally am rather ambivalent about. I have been surprised that some people have actually enjoyed it. And it was actually a poem that ended up in the Best Canadian Poetry Anthology last year. In the defense of the poem, it did win prize at the <laughs> Philhead. But nonetheless, it is such an odd, messy, yeah, I, I, sloppy poem in many ways that any good fortune, I feel like it's been a lucky poem. The poem's been lucky, but I, I can't quite tell you why. Was there a justification for the, the choice? I'd, I'd be interested in reading that. I think readers have responded just to the, the language the playfulness of it, especially the way that the language is tied to the, the movements and the physical activity of squash. And this is obviously something that I was trying to do in the poem, which is I was trying to capture just the physicality of squash in language, give you the sense of how a game would play out, mm-hmm. you know, just in terms of sound. And then at the end, you're both exhausted, exhausted. Looking, looking at the floor. A lot like the reader reading the poem, which is like, okay, this, is, this has been a bit too much. But squash game sometimes feels a bit like No, absolutely, you know? yeah. I have to say, though, because it's kind of funny that you chose the butterfly poem, because I wrote or began both these poems at an uh, artist colony in Virginia, the VCCA of Virginia, Center for the Creative Arts. And after I wrote the butterfly poem, I thought, Christ, and you know, a butterfly poem, <laughs> right. of all things, right? Yeah. How non-avant-garde. That's right. I mean, like, you know, I mean, of all the things they could write about. So what ends up happening, you know, as you begin to brainstorm. And, you know, one morning after that, I thought, you know, I'd never written about squash, and I love playing the game, so let me try it. And then the poem came very quickly after that. Going with a passion. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We've looked at your own poetry and given a bit of a, a reviewer's eye to it. In the latest issue of ARC Poetry Magazine, there's a feature review on on you, your work, by Chris Jennings. It's beautifully written. It makes some interesting points. Maybe a lot more simple than the space that's given yeah. in the feature. And that is that there's a significant, and I'm quoting here, difference between mastering a subject and then finding the medium to express it and mastering a medium to the point that the resources it offers direct you more deeply into whatever you use them to express. The authority of the former, in poetry at least, depends on fidelity to the subject matter, i.e. the test of truth, authenticity, and honesty is applied to the knowledge or understanding or experience that the poetic persona transfers to a receptive reader. The authority of the latter depends on fidelity to the medium, i.e. finding ways to provoke patterns of thought or networks of perception and connection that conjure the subject before the reader and act as a catalyst to an experience of knowledge or understanding without, or at least less dependent on, the imbalance of power between honest poet and trusting reader. I'll just skip a few lines here to the end of that paragraph, which says, this way out might not have been as successful an aesthetic leap without the sequence of smaller shifts in credo and with English subtitles toward a more objective voice, a corresponding increase in emotional complexity, and an increased focus on languages, both subject and medium. It's a mouthful, Barry. And, and it should be, because I think he's, mouthful is the wrong way of putting it. I think he's, he's trying to uh, capture something quite complex. He's essentially trying to capture the mystery of what it is that we do and, and, and keep doing, you know, from book to book. Right? Yeah. Which is not something really people talk about. I mean, when you think when you think about Auden, you think about you know the limestone poem. You think about him. He's fixing our minds in specific successes that he's had. We don't really think of Auden anymore as maybe readers in his lifetime thought of him as someone progressing through books, mm-hmm. you know, and learning from one book to the next. 
progressing yeah. but not necessarily improving, obviously. Maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. not, yeah. yeah. But one thing that happens in the tradition is that careers are whittled down to best one or two poems, and they're anthologized, and that's what we know about them. But he's trying to capture the sense of, and I'm honored that he did this, of reading me from book to book. But what's he saying that's unique about you? Nothing. He's using my book as a pretext for a discussion about, I think, how certain successful books, the success of certain books, can only be judged best when set aside books that came prior to it. And he uh, talks about a three-legged race, right. where, as we yeah. talked earlier, you may be focusing in on what the, the gut emotion that's versus right, yeah. the form, yeah. and then and moving back and forth yeah. between the two. In a way, this is an interesting sort of method or tactic he's taken in the review because he's saying, if you know anything else about Stonina, then this book will come as a bit of a shocker because it's actually much better than anything else he's done. He doesn't come out and say that. My feeling, I mean, it's not a particularly evaluative review, but I feel that the evaluative nature of it comes in the close attention he brings to the book, right? Okay. And he feels motivated to do so because this is a book that has surprised him. That's my sense. It's been a, you know, a few months since I read the review, but I don't know if he ever comes out to say on its own, objectively, this is a good book. The book is judged against its predecessors, but at no point does he, does he cut the book off from his spirit to say, but this is, you know, by any standard, yeah, this is a good book. This is a good book by my standards. And the standards Sternino has set, this is a very good book. This is how, what I feel the review is doing. I mean, and I honor it for it. I mean, I think yeah. he's, he's read the book very close, closely, and I've learned a lot about the poems that I may not have known. I did not know my own. And so this is something else that a critic can read closely, can do. He can mm -hmm. reveal things about the book that you may not have known. And this is what Chris did for me. Okay, well, let's get away from that kind of review. Sure. And finish off by you giving me the best and the worst poets that are out there right now. <laughs> Let me think about this just for a little bit. I think we don't have time for you to give a, a reasoned no. explanation, but we'll take it that you've thought these opinions through fairly carefully. I have. And also, sorry to interrupt, but to, just to preface it by saying, as we, we talked about yeah. earlier, it's very, very difficult to write a great poem in, yeah. in, in the history of humankind. There aren't that many. I would say that one of the very best Canadian poets, who's living in London now, but I think we can claim as our own, is Eric Ormsby. I think his ear is extraordinary. I mean, the only other ear I can compare it to is Hopkins. I mean, he hears things into the language that, uh, as far as I know, no one else is, is, is hearing. And he is a complete poet. Uh, he can do anything. He can write any kind of poem. He can, he can do it simple. He can do it rich. You would think he has total control over the, over, over the language he uses. The other is a bit more controversial now, but David Solway, I think, would be one of our very best. Even though he's not practicing. Yeah. Uh, he's gone to the dark side now. Yes. Um, <laughs> politics. Politics, yeah. But, uh, but the very best of what he's done, I'm pretty confident will be considered among the best Canada has produced. I'm talking about maybe not a judgment that will come in our lifetime, but I'm going to have to trust that the future will be reading this stuff and not mixing in personality into You know both of these people personally. I do. I mean, full disclosure, I know yeah. both of them personally. I think Mary Dalton lately has been writing some excellent work, some really, really fine poems, and I have to take a page out of the Chris Jennings reviewing detectives compared to her earlier books. The poems she's writing now, Mary Dalton out in Newfoundland, are mm. extraordinary. Her book, Mary Begot, which is a series of little ditties, short little poems written out of the Newfoundland dialect will have to be judged as a classic text. I mean, it is just in terms of, it's a, as an accomplishment. I mean, the, the, her ability to turn, transform this uh, half-lit, almost dead dialect, you know, spoken by very few people mm -hmm. into poetry. 
bring it to the to the present. Bring it to the present uh, mm-hmm. of, of buff it up um, and turn it into something that's relevant and, and, and completely new sounding to our ears. It's hard to come up with entirely new music, but to do it by drawing on uh, a neglected dialect is is even more extraordinary. And so she also belongs to a growing school of poets that write in non-Anglo-American. English, you know, Newfoundland belongs to the Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania, to Tasmania, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They're being mixed into what up to now has been recognizable Anglo-American accent, and there's Russian in entirely new sounds based on more indigenous speech. I'm sure that if the vocabulary I'm using is altogether appropriate, but I hope my meaning comes through. You want to be careful in how you talk about some of this stuff. So she would be one, someone I've never understood whose career. I mean, I've, I, I mean, I've understood. I, I've never been able to fit my understanding to the reality of it, which is, is Domakai. I don't think he's as good as many people say, although he's a perfectly competent poet. You don't know him personally. I don't know him personally. I can never fit the amazing things people say about him to the poems that I'm reading. There's some disconnect there. And here's one example I think where personal feeling, to personal sort of friendships, the friendships or any kind of personal loyalty to him begins to. Somehow make, be mixed in into uh, the appreciation of the poems. The small pond. Maybe syndrome. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that must be it. I mean, it's certainly I'm sure a phenomenon elsewhere in the world. But um, in his case, it's particularly notable because his poems are sucking up so much oxygen now, and the commentary on him is um, and the appreciation of him, as you feel, has grown to the extent where it's he's now our Purdy. I mean, he's now mm-hmm. the top dog. He's now the you know the poet everyone talks about. Everyone wants to sidle up against. Everyone wants to write like. And yet again, I don't recognize that. The poems don't justify the attention being given to him. That's how I feel. It's someone else who I'm totally flabbergasted by is Jan Zwicky. I find her poems limp, boring, totally uninteresting, tepid even uh, intellectually. Although she has a reputation as being this like extraordinary philosopher, she's one poet who I, who I don't get. I mean, a lot of friends of mine, people I respect, seem to get her. I don't get her. So it's up to you if you were called upon to rationalize that. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't feel as though I have to particularly apologize for it, but, you know, there is this growing movement now to sort of squash all negative reviewing, negative criticism. You know? yeah. I don't understand this fear. Yeah. Do you yeah. say you get more out of a negative review than you do typically out of a positive Sometimes one? I yeah. do, yeah. It is censorship by civility. It is censorship mm-hmm. by a kind of imposed a disinterestedness, as though our reactions to poetry, appropriate reaction to poetry, is a kind of enforced niceness. Um, Canadianness. Maybe. Maybe yeah. that's what it is. And, and also... I find that attitude is, is a tremendously sort of insulting to the reader because mm-hmm. it, 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 it supposes that the reader can't make up his own mind about the negative review he's reading, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I argue in The Lover's Quarrel is that negative reviews inhabit a discretionary realm. You should lighten up because you can refuse anything in them, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to read the review, you can read something else. I don't think any of my reviews have, have caused mortal harm to any of the poets that I've, I've written about. Yeah, one would only hope that they would have expanded their horizon. Or at, uh, the, or at the very least caused his or her enthusiast to work that much harder in defending his or her interests. The point is to raise the conversation uh, and raise some of some of the boilerplate praise that, that is, is sort of uh, trotted out yeah. or used and force everyone to look again. Look again. Let's look again. Because you can be guaranteed that the future will be even more ruthless than can we possibly imagine. Ruthless in terms of what? It just doesn't care. I mean, I think the... Think apathy, the, I mean, that's the worst. No, not apathy. I think the... What are the things that we're... And this is a, something that I got from William Logan during one of his essays. One of the things that we can be sure about a hundred years from now is that future readers will think we were, will think we were entirely too nice to people. Yeah. And, the, and, and more importantly, they will think we weren't mean enough. We weren't tough enough. They'll be shocked at the poets we're, we, that we celebrate, and they'll be shocked at the poets we've neglected. This is one thing that tradition teaches us. We will be surprised.
Uh, yeah. Who would have thought Hopkins? Who would have thought Dickinson? Even Whitman in his heyday, um, I don't think anyone would have anticipated the, how he totally sort of rules now. So I have no qualms about being honest about this yeah, stuff because right. I think the future will sort of sift it out as it sees fit. But yeah. in this moment, in this time, this is how I see it. Final question. Favorite poet, favorite critic? Favorite critic at the moment would have to be Clive James. And favorite poet, i got to say, Seamus Heaney still surprises me. I came across some new poems by him recently. And, uh, I thought they were really lovely. So he's someone who's put the lie to the iron truth that you know after the Nobel you stop writing. Mm -hmm. well, he's, he's maybe his second wind or he's another blooming. You know. So I've read some. Did he get divorced recently? I don't think so. No. <laughs> no. Someone whose other work has been enjoying a lot lately has been uh, Michael Hoffman, who I think is really good. And another poet that I, to my surprise, I've been enjoying is someone an American named Peter Getzey who is associated with the language poets, but writes, he really actually writes some rather really beautiful lyric poems. Sometimes we like to sort of pretend where poets are something they're not really, you know, just to make them more heading edge, but Peter Getzey, yeah. Thanks for the recommendations. Yeah. Thanks <laughs> for the uh, candid uh, review of your own work, and best of luck in future oh, endeavors. Oh, thanks for, thanks for inviting me to talk. I've been speaking with Carmine Starnino. Poet has written most recently This Way Out, published by Gaspro Press, and also editor of Maison Nerve in Montreal.